0: Hello and welcome to the Talk Me podcast. On this episode, we release from the Carrick Institute vault, Professor Carrick's discussion on olfactory systems and neurology. In this episode, Professor Carrick presents an overview of the olfactory system and its relationship to Parkinson's disease, supernuclear palsy, and other conditions. We hope you enjoy the show. Good day, people. I've been asked to speak about the clinical aspects of testing smell in neurological uh, disorders. We know that the loss of olfaction is one of the primary problems that we see in Parkinsonism. As a matter of fact, we see it 10 to 15 years before the onset of any tremors. So. We want to talk about the olfactory system and the things that you want to look at from a clinical perspective in your in your patient care. We know that the sense of smell is pretty well taken for granted. A lot of people just underappreciate it, but the sense of smell is so important for us clinically. It's going to allow us to monitor the intake of different agents that are airborne, and it's going to allow us to be able to determine the uh, what things taste like, what things... Um, Uh, are are like in regards to things that are pleasurable, but we also have to monitor uh, other things in the environment that we're going to take into our lungs so that we really have an ability to enhance our quality of life, to look at things that are pleasurable, and of course, to stay away from things that are not uh, pleasurable, such as spoiled food, or uh, polluted air, and you know garbage, all of these other uh, types of aspects. And uh, we take it for granted until things actually go wrong. We know that there's elements of communication, for instance, between uh, little babies and their moms at the early aspect that are really reflected in the olfactory uh, system. Unfortunately, one of the first signs that we see in degenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's diseases, frontal lobe diseases, Parkinson's diseases, is a loss of the sense of smell. So we really need to understand the anatomy, the physiology of things uh, in regards to the olfactory system so that we can have a good idea clinically of what we might be able to do for our patients, realizing that a sense of smell uh, or the maintenance of a sense of smell is really integral for high human uh, function. A lot of doctors just don't check the sense of smell, and therefore you can miss a lot of things that are going to happen before you can really be aggressive in the treatment. Disorders of the frontal lobe, basal ganglia. Uh, we know that the nutritional status of a person is reflected in their sense of smell and that olfaction is very important for the safety of a of a person if there's uh, something bad in the individual area. We know uh, that we want to look at smell in regards to disorders before they really become uh, superclinical, such as Alzheimer's, et cetera, and the Parkinson's disease that we've, uh, we've talked about. There's a whole load of literature that is very, very specific for uh, testing smell and looking at clinical types of effects. There's a lot of research that tells about what happens when you uh, lose your the sense of smell, the, the effect of body weight, changes of an appetite, psychological well-being, uh, in a variety of things of, uh, for instance, uh, being able to get yourself out of a hazardous uh, problem, whether it be a fire or be some poisoning or or things like that. We know that individuals that uh, decrease their ability to taste things actually uh, have a decreased sense of smell and flavors such as chocolate, strawberry, licorice, uh, coffee, uh, cola, are really dependent upon the stimulation of the olfactory nerve uh, during uh, during tasting. These aspects are, are very, very well known. We know that when you damage the olfactory epithelium, that the sensory aspects of what you smell can actually disappear and leave intact only your somatosensory sensations and the perception of the primary taste qualities of sweet, sour, uh, bitter, metallic uh, types of, of uh, tastes. So that the fine taste or the higher human aspects are really dependent upon. Smell and whole mouth uh, taste uh, function is very, very resilient to uh, pathology it 's uh, resilient to uh, different uh, alterations, so we maintain that that whole mouth taste function, but they 're very, very primitive. Uh, more so than we uh, look at uh, smell. And the reason that we maintain taste is because of the taste relationships to the central nervous system through uh, 7, 9, and 10 of the uh, cranial nerves. So let's look at the sensory receptors in regards to the, sensor, uh, the sense of smell. We know that you've got about, um, man, 6 million bipolar receptor cells where the cell bodies, dendrites, and initial axonal segments are beneath the olfactory epithelium. These are... Found in the roof of the nasal chamber, make up the peripheral elements of the uh, olfactory system. And they're pretty well resistant. They're pseudostratified columnar epithelium, and they've got a really highly vascularized uh, covering, the lamina propria, which covers the cribriform plate and the sides of the terminates. And these receptor cells are going to project through the cribriform plate. And they're very, very susceptible if you, you know, fracture your skull or you break the front of your face, then you can shear these uh, these receptor cells off as they pass um, and synapse within the glomular layer directly in the olfactory bulb. And uh, we know that there's individual cilia that um, are going to project from the receptor cells into the mucus and uh, give us the ability to breathe. So we've got some bipolar receptor neurons, and again, we talk about about these things in the very, very early modules when we're talking about the um, the sensory system. We know that we need to be able to dissolve odorants uh, in into mucus. Odorants are largely hydrophobic and, and then we transfer these to the olfactory receptor protein. So if you've got a dry nose or if you've got increased uh, secretions in your nose, you're just not going to breathe uh, very, very well. We know that the projections of the olfactory bulb are directly to the nervous system. They're located at the base of the frontal lobe and uh, subfrontal or infrafrontal tumors can cause problems with the sensory aspects of uh, smell. So go through and just uh, review, I think, the receptor structure. I'm not going to spend a whole load of time there. The one thing we do know is that we've got the primary neurons uh, from these receptors. The secondary neurons are the primary output neurons of the bulb. Uh, these are mitral and tufted cells and on and on we, we go. Most of them are GABAergic or dopaminergic so we look at this old primitive system that is very unique to humankind but let's talk about the olfactory Cortex. This is where we get into some uh, really exciting things, I think, in our clinical applications. We know that when we look at the olfactory bulb, we have uh, cells that leave this bulb, the mitral and tufted cells, and they go via the lateral olfactory tract, and there's synaptic activity on the primary olfactory cortex. which is the the piriform cortex, the anterior cortical nucleus, also of the amygdala and the rostral entorhinal cortex. So we've got a, a pretty well segregated segregated area of brain. The components of the olfactory portion of the brain have very very important. Um, Synaptic activity between between all of them. That is to say, they have reciprocal relationships, and they also project to some very high brain functions. So that uh, we know that the hippocampus receives fibers from the entorhinal cortex. We know that the axons of the pyramidal cells of the anterior um, olfactory nucleus uh, are going to project to ipsilateral and contralateral rostral olfactory brain structures and we know that the olfactory system plays a very significant role in regulating neural input to both sides of the brain so when you have a hemispheristic type of disorder one of the easiest things to do is say hey let's going let's give somebody something to smell and you're pretty well guaranteed that you're going to affect both sides of the brain because of this unique uh, collateral types of types of effects the interesting aspect that we know about the olfactory system is that uh, compared to other sensory systems, it's very unique because there's no synaptogenesis in the thalamus, which means to say for clinical purposes, we can bypass that thalamus, we can really bypass the gating system of the of the basal ganglia, and uh, Really look at uh, great effects uh, to the human brain bilaterally. We know that the connections between the primary olfactory cortex and the secondary or, or, uh, olfactory cortex, which is really the, the frontal lobe or the orbital frontal cortex does have some types of relationship with the dorsal medial thalamus, but the, the majority of it is not. So in general, we're looking at some higher-order representations of the, the quality of things that you can smell, the ability to identify them, that sort of familiarity. Also, um, This is uniquely associated with higher human functions such as remembering what an order is, uh, the learned types of information, and uh, the relationships between the human amygdala. Now, the amygdala is is something that we know uh, is, I guess, conveniently thought to respond only to these emotionally significant uh, types of concepts, such as uh, higher human function, but also uh, odors that are pleasant, perfumes, for instance, or, of course, unpleasant odors uh, as well. We know that the uh, information from the uh, entorhinal cortex is going to enter the hippocampus. It's going to help us in learning and memory, so we like to use these with a ADHD kids, but we also like to use this in in early dementias, Alzheimer's, basal ganglionic problems uh, as well. Uh, When we look at the testing of olfactory function, we know that We've got to do a few things with our patients. One, we've got to establish the, the validity of a patient's complaint. You know, if they can't smell or not, can we quantify it? Can we look at the specific nature of the individual person suffering? And then can we monitor any, any changes over a period of time? Because it are these changes that are uniquely involved with the human experience. We can look at individuals that have problems in a variety of conditions by looking at their individual uh, sense of smell and comparing this to other types of functions, and of course look at the individual uh, disability. We know, uh, for instance, uh, boy, when you look at a lot of patients, they don't even know that they've lost a sense of smell until you uh, you check it. Um, over 90% of patients with Parkinson's disease have a demonstrable loss in their ability to smell, but only 15% of them are aware of the problem until you actually test them. And this has different consequences uh, of pleasure and avoidance in humankind. But the greatest consequence is that you're going to have patients that lose a sense of smell far before any aspect of tremor or any other types of Conditions come on, so it's very, very important for us to get a handle on things uniquely and, and quickly so that we might be able to uh, look at other aspects and preserve the maximum amount of function in our patients for the maximum amount of time and, and really make a whole load of individual uh, changes. Well, there's a whole load of tests that you can do for small function, but realistically, uh, these are for labs and for researchers. What we want to do is look at a simple odor identification tests, and the classic ones you use are just putting test tubes that are full of coffee or mint or things. But to quantify things, which is a very good idea to do when you look at individuals that may suffer from a variety of conditions and see if they have a progressive disorder is to use the classic uh, smell identification uh, tests. uh, And and the best one is probably the University of Pennsylvania uh, smell identification test. And um, this can be purchased uh, by uh, Sensonics Incorporated out of New Jersey, and it's something you can administer in 10 to 15 patients. You can even have you know your assistant or nurse do it, and it's scored in less uh, than a minute, and you don't need any training to score it. It's a 40-item test, and there's also some subtests on it, but it's pretty darn cheap, and uh, everyone uses it when you look at individual uh, studies and also it's nice to know that if you change brain function you might be able to change smell but more importantly a loss of sense of smell is going to alert you that something probably is happening with that frontal lobe or some neurodegenerative type of uh, type of effect so when we look at this um, simplified uh, uh, smell identification test it's uh, it's a test that, the patient is presented with um, these different uh, odorant pads or really sc- uh, scratch-and-sniff sort of things, and they're required to choose from different response alternatives. There's four responses, and there's an answer for each stimulus, even if none of them seems appropriate to what the person is smelling, or even if they don't smell anything. So what this does is it encourages the individual patient to really sample the individual stimuli. It also provides a means for detecting if people are trying to, to fake the chance performance is 10 out of 40, so very low scores reflect uh, avoidance, and uh, it gives you a probability that the person do recognize what's happening, and they're trying to fake it out. So when you look at the normative data in the literature that looks at the responses, uh, you're really looking at something that's pretty darn Accurate, and you can classify an individuals sense of smell absolutely into one of six main uh, categories: a uh, normal osmia, a mild microsmia, a moderate microsmia, a severe microsmia, an osmia, and then of course the malingary and This has some uh, very, very profound uh, consequences. The thresholds for Olfaction is something that you keep on diluting stimulus into uh, something that doesn't have an odor, such as mineral oil, and then keep on getting them to sniff till they can't uh, sniff sniff at all. We know that um, bilateral testing is going to check. Most of the clinical meanings of olfactory dis- dysfunction. Uh, so bilateral tests are going to be really measuring the function of the the better side of the nose. So if you can't smell on one side, you're really checking them checking them both. So when we want to look at unilateral smelling. Then we want to look at the nostril that's contralateral to the tested side, make sure that it's blocked so that we're not going to cross uh, you know cross over and people can put foam in it or you just you know pinch the the nostril and then uh, breathe in normally exhale uh, through the mouth so when we look at uh, when we look at the loss of being able to smell something, which is a progressive disorder in most of our movement disorders and frontal lobe disorders, we want to be able to look and give some classification. Is the person able to smell at all or can they not smell? Do they have a nosmia or is it incomplete and if it 's incomplete, you know how much can they smell? Are they hyposmia are they microsmia? Uh, is there any distortions, for instance um, with temporal lobe problems such as you smell something? That's it's very nice, and it smells bad uh, to you. Also, uh, do people have different sensations that may be associated with that smell? Does it bring them up back to a memory or something? Uh, you know, something something else. When we look at um, the uh, individual complaints of uh, changes in smell, for instance. Um, we think of other things that might be happening in the nasal cavity first. For instance, if you're smelling garbage or the person is smelling something bad, don't think, well, oh, it's your temporal lobe. They might have something happening inside their uh, nostrils or in their own body. They may have a bacterial infection or have a metabolic uh, type of uh, Type of uh, you know a problem or something like that, so before you jump into brain, think of the the local causes for instance there 's a whole load of diseases that are going to Influence or change the ability to smell things. For instance, um, about seventy-five percent of all people who have chronic anosmia are have upper respiratory infections, head trauma, or nasal and paranasal sinus disease that damage that olfactory epithelium. So you want to be very careful when you rate that loss of a sense of smell to the probabilities of an underlying Parkinson uh, syndrome or frontal lobe syndrome or I'm assuming uh Alzheimer's disease. So think of the the logical uh medical types of uh, concomitants. Of course the age of the person. Uh, women are more sensitive than men, for instance. Uh, They made duller sensation by smoking. Uh, They may have had some uh, radiation therapy because of uh, tumors or neoplasms in their nose. They might have had a a nose job, a rhinoplasty. Uh, Of course, the neurodegenerative diseases are really intimate in what we are actually uh, doing. There's a a variety of intracranial tumors, uh, olfactory groove meningiomas, frontal lobe gliomas, Uh, psychiatric disorders, exposures to chemicals that are very, very important uh, for us, as well as the uh, concepts of hypothyroidism and kidney disease, which uh, are pretty classic. So uh, everyone, as you get older, is going to lose their sense of smell. We say that this is a normal aging characteristic, but in fact... um, the, uh, we, we find this olfactory decline as, as people's brains start to to get worse. When we look at the age-related decline in the sense of smell, it's much more severe for men than for women. And if you see it, you're going to have to rule out some local causes and then think, of course, of uh, of brain. The, the fact is, is most people don't know that they're losing their sense of smell and you may not be able to Understand and correct a, a tremor before it starts without noticing it uh, yourself uh, most doctors don't even check for it so if you start to check for that you're gonna find a whole load of things and be able to make a difference uh, for individuals under the age of 65 you've got about two uh, percent of the population has some chronic smelling problems but as you get a little bit older you're gonna have a rapid increase with um, about half of the population uh, having decreases in their sense of smell between the ages of 65 and 80 and over the ages of 80 you've only got got about 20% of the population left that can smell anything. So these things are so very, very important uh, for us. Uh, upper respiratory infections uh, that are usually viral in nature are the most common causes of, of problems with your uh, sense of uh, smell, and this can result in damage not only to the epithelium of the olfactory tract, but also of the individual uh, structures Uh a variety of things that can uh, can cause some aspects, in the um, when it comes to viral infections, of course. Um, some of them are asymptomatic. They're pretty mild, and uh, individuals may have a little bout of a flu or, or something, like this and not even know uh, what the um, that their sense of smell has been uh, gone on. So, if you see a young person and they lose their sense of smell, oftentimes they've got an unrecognized viral infection. This is very, very uh, important. We know. That uh, the sense of smell in young people is largely pretty good. So as it starts to go, uh, down the tubes, and then I think of a virus that can spread through the olfactory and trigeminal nerves that can go into the brain. Uh, also, we can have exposure to different chemicals, uh, herbicides, pesticides, heavy metals, solvents, and these things can cause a problem in your, your sense of smell. Among the heavy metals, the, the documented cases that you see are for manganese, chromium, nickel, cadmium, and these can damage your olfactory epithelium. Uh, and like uh, viruses, uh, can enter the brain through the olfactory mucosa. It's it's not so tight in those individual areas, and your olfactory receptor neurons can take up and they can transport things. Again, the viruses, of course, but also these heavy, uh, heavy metals, and they can pop them back to the brain at around three millimeters per hour. So uh, these individual airborne effects are thought now to perhaps be the etiology of neurodegenerative disease. So you've got to be very careful if you're you're in an area where you can be exposed to a variety of, um, of airborne, airborne contaminants, which can hurt your brain or not be so brain-friendly. Uh, when we look at uh, individuals that have volatile brains, such as in uh, epilepsy, uh, we expect to see a heightened uh, sense of smell, particularly... Before an event, So an increased sense of smell, not a decrease, but an increased sense of smell. So individuals say, boy, you know, from time to time you start getting a smell sensitivity, uh, you, you may want to think of an epileptiform uh, type type of effect. We also uh, find that individuals that have right-sided uh, epileptiform activity or epileptiform activity on the left side of their body, they seem to be a little more sensitive to smells and, and also sometimes have these uh, pre- premonitory. Types of our pre-ictor types of uh, types of foci. Uh, epileptic patients that have right-sided lesions of their epilepsy uh, have been found to have decreased performance on odor matching tests when compared with epileptics that have left-sided types of things. So that's pretty interesting. Let's get into the neurodegenerative diseases where most of us are going to spend uh, the greatest aspect of, of our. Um, attention. So when you look at things as a functional neurologist, and we look at the olfactory dysfunction, as soon as someone has a loss of smell, it sends up flags. It's really one of the features of a whole load of neurodegenerative diseases, particularly Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. And of course, these people don't know that they've lost their sense of smell until you check for it. And if you check for uh, these things, you're going to find it before their tremor. We know that Um, man, up to 90% of early-staged Parkinson's patients or Alzheimer's patients are going to have problems with this um, uh, sense of smell. They have decreased activation of central odor processing uh, structures, and this has been seen in the literature in, in regards to their functional imaging and a variety of other things. We know that the deficit that's associated with uh, the ability to smell in a Parkinson's patient doesn't respond to uh, to L-DOPA or dopamine agonist or anticholinergic compounds. You need to do a different type of a treatment. And the treatment with L-DOPA, et cetera, is only really good for the tremor. It doesn't affect that quality of life that people really, um, really, really love. The The magnitude of the sense of uh, smell is 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 pretty well associated with the stage of the uh, the disease, so that we can look at uh, olfactory testing, and it can differentiate between people that have early stage diagnosed uh, Parkinson's and, and people that don't. So there's really a lot of evidence that uh, an individual loss of smell is going to is going to occur much, much earlier than the classical symptoms of of dementia or of, of Parkinson's disease, tremor and the flat faces and the flexion types of effects. And it's going to precede it by several years, which really gives you an opportunity as a functional neurologist to be able to identify that and then start to do things to maintain basal ganglionic integrity, maintain frontal striatal dopaminergic uh, health. We know that these preclinical periods are very, very important. You can do a whole load of things. It's easier to start doing things that are neuroprotective, uh, getting people to walk, to exercise, to uh, balance out any hemispheristic problems, and to let people know, you know, what they have, and then to communicate with other people. Just get a little bit ahead of it. Uh, we know that sometimes you've got a just a normal person, a non a non parkinsonian patient, someone who doesn't have Alzheimer's disease. That has the uh, Apo Lipoprotein E4. That's Apo4 allele. These people are going to have about five times the risk of having future cognitive decline than those that don't possess that individual uh, marker. So when we look at this, it goes like, man, you know, we want to, we want to know this. It's, it's really going to have a window of, of possible types of uh, types of dementia. So uh, olfactory dysfunction is. Very, very important in Parkinsonian types of uh, disorders, Alzheimer's disorders. We also know that relatives of individuals that have uh, Parkinson's disease, that have a uh, decreased sense of smell, have a big, big clinical. Uh, increase in the probability of developing Parkinson's disease themselves. So when you have a history of Parkinson's disease in a family, you really want to check the sense of smell in in other individual uh, people. We know that there's you know some variety or um, you know variation in the magnitude of uh, loss of smell or the prevalence of loss of smell among different neurodegenerative diseases. So when we look at the olfactory dysfunction function of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's. Uh, disease, it's going to be you know really, really severe, whereas Huntington's disease or uh, ALS or schizophrenia, they're going to have a loss of sense of smell, but not as great as the Parkinson's patient or the Alzheimer's types of patient. Very, very interestingly, uh, there's a good differential between individuals that have progressive supernuclear palsy and Parkinson's disease, and that is the sense of smell. The people with uh, progressive supernuclear palsy have just a, a minor her loss of, uh, of smell, whereas the PD patients have a lot. So the progressive supranuclear palsy patients, you know, if you start seeing a difference in the relationship between horizontal and vertical saccades, uh, you think of something happening in the frontal lobe and a downward saccade loss or a loss of vertical upward optokinetic responses, which is really a downward saccade, is seen in the supranuclear palsies, whereas the Parkinsonian patients initially lose a upward saccades, but really, really clinically is the preservation of smell in progressive supranuclear palsy, which is markedly worse, of course, with its outcome than Parkinson's disease. You also have the uh, uh, presentation of applause signs in supranuclear palsies where the person will clap more than three times uh, to an individual uh, stimulus. But sense of smell is really, really important in the differential diagnoses, uh, and it can be uh, really life-changing. We know that uh, the sense of smell is going to be seen in a variety of things, from Down syndrome to... Uh, problems with individuals with have IQ. We know that Huntington disease is going to have a loss of sense of smell, but the deficits are going to be in odor identification, but not as great as in uh, parkinsonian types of uh, types of effect, depending upon their individual phenotype. Now, when you look at individuals that have multiple sclerosis, the MS patients are going to. Exhibit dysfunction and smell that is really proportional to the the quantitative <coughs> excuse me the quantitative relationship of the uh, plaques in the subfrontal and subtemporal lobes. This is very very happy for us to know as neurologists because individuals. That do have MS that preserve their sense of smell have a probability that they they're not going to have plaques in the subfrontal and subtemporal lobes and this of course gives us a variety of things that we can we can really really uh, do um, very very interestingly we do have some evidence in the literature that individuals that have uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease that these individuals uh, present with olfactory uh, dysfunction, which is an associated involvement of the olf- uh, of the ol- olfactory tract with the uh, uh, with the prion uh, protein PRP. And this really tells us something in regards to neurodegenerative diseases that that olfactory pathway is very, very important uh, as a route of invasion into the brain and, of course, as a consequence of uh, spreading the infection. Well, let's go on with it and talk about different concepts of head trauma and other neurodegenerative diseases, and just get it into a concept so that you're familiar with it. It's real simple to test. Most people don't do it. Uh, Start getting the idea, and uh, onwards we go. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for asking for this, and I'll uh, be speaking to you soon. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on CarrickInstitute.com.